Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with a special edition live from Forever Maryland's inaugural Land Conservation Conference. This conference was held at the Ripken Stadium in Hartford County, home of the Ironbirds, and brought together land trusts, local and state government, environmental nonprofits, community groups, and members of the ag community for a packed two-day conference. We sat for a panel discussion, which we recorded for this episode, with four leaders in county government, all of which have strong ties to land conservation and environmental advocacy. You'll hear from Howard County Council Member Christiana Rigby, Baltimore City Council Member Mark Conway, Talbot County Council Member Pete Lesher, and Anne Arundel County Executive Stuart Pittman. We covered a lot of ground here, with topics ranging from open space, local green and sustainable initiatives, balancing community needs, advocacy, and the importance of providing all Marylanders with green spaces like parks, playgrounds, and residential greenery to promote physical and mental health. So let's jump in. And on behalf of Michael Sanderson, I hope you enjoyed this episode and make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about Forever Maryland and this wonderful conference. We're excited to be here live at the Maryland Land Conservation Conference with with literally scores and scores of people who weathered a hot day to join us today. We have a terrific panel of local leaders to talk about initiatives that they've seen and have their hands on. Without further ado, let me introduce our first speaker on today's panel. Uh, Pete Lesher is in his first term on the Talbot County Council, but he is not a new face in local government as a leader or to the land and historic conservation universe. So with that, Councilmember Lesher, thanks very much for joining us today. Happy to have you as part of this conference. We've got a microphone here. Let's get you plugged in and hear what you have to say for today. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Tal- Talbot County. Talbot County is a small county. Talbot County is a rural county. And Talbot County is, uh, like all government, uh, a resource-constrained county. Um, Resource-constrained not because we have a small tax base, which we do not, but resource-constrained because we've got a, a property tax revenue cap. And, uh, and that means that the, the amount that we, can, that we can raise property tax, which is our principal source of revenue, uh, is, is, is limited every year. Uh, and hopefully, it's, hopefully now it at least won't go below the, the rate of inflation. But this, this, is, this is a constrained environment. And so when we talk about amenities, when we talk about quality of life issues, when we talk about parks and open space, Talbot County, of course, it does receive those, those revenues from the transfer tax, does receive, uh, is eligible for uh, program open space funding, and we take advantage of that to the fullest extent that we can. Many other counties will supplement that. We'll put additional funds in to keep up with, with agricultural open space preservation, Talbot County does not. We, we use those resources that come in from, from the transfer tax from those sources, and that is it. Um, there, simply, there simply is not a large enough slice of the pie, or hasn't been, to allocate beyond that. And so in terms of open space in Talbot County, I'm fortunate, for the most part, in that my predecessors have done a lot in the zoning code to ensure that we have... Uh, that we value open space, that we value our agricultural roots, that we that we understand uh, that 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 is a limited resource too, and so we we limit subdivision in some of our, our the rural parts of our county to to what we did a, a major downzoning back in the 80s, uh, controversial uh, to one house per 20 acres, and on top of that, more recently back in the 90s, we managed to to put in our comprehensive plan and get this 
are municipalities actually agreed to this same point in their comprehensive plans? The county and the municipalities actually agreed. This does not happen everywhere and all the time. But uh, we put green belts, one-mile green belts, around the ultimate growth boundary around each of our municipalities. In those green belts, we can use the, the usual incentives. We can transfer development uh, rights out of those green belts, but not in. We don't have further carrots, and that's we, we come up short on, on further carrots there. But we do have, long before I arrived on the scene, some, some, good, some good tools and some good basic ground rules in place that ensure open space uh, in, in Talbot County, and that helps keep, that helps channel growth into the areas where we have the infrastructure to support it, which is largely in the municipalities. In this environment, we've, Talbot County, Talbot County has 600 miles of shoreline. If you think about the way land and water is so delicately intertwined around the Chesapeake Bay, you just don't find that in other places. And yet, there is so little waterfront that is open to public access. And so we've been looking for those opportunities. There are small parcels. Uh, we're looking at one right now in, actually, in one of our municipalities. I doubt we will have the resources to acquire it. Uh, but we did actually recently open uh, what we call the Oxford Conservation Park, not waterfront, although it is marshfront. There's a lot of that, too, in Talbot County. Uh, 60, uh, 86 acres. Uh, and, again, in a resource-constrained environment, we engaged an architectural firm, uh, a Thomas Morton and Associates, that won an AIA award for working frugally to design uh, public access to that park. So uh, how do we get things done? We do it with partners uh, like that. Looking forward, we've got, we've got a great opportunity uh, right in the northeastern part of Talbot County, where Talbot County comes up against Caroline and is close to the Queen Anne's County line with a new park, uh, the Frederick Douglass on the Tuckahoe Park. Uh, a smaller parcel, but really promising, and it is waterfront, and it will offer kayak access, but more importantly, will offer an interpretive story. Uh, history that that too many people don't know about. When you think about uh, Frederick Douglass's story, uh, we think about Anacostia, we think about about New York, but but Talbot County, his birthplace, and we have acquired a parcel uh, very close to the land that evokes the landscape where Frederick Douglass was was born. That is now in the visioning, and we have big visions, but we will not achieve those big visions without partners, and we'll be looking to uh, certainly nonprofit partners as well as government partners to make that to make that a reality. Very good. So I, I will say what tends to happen at a session like this is you get a lot of 101 level stuff, and that's really good. We're going to have multiple jurisdictions give you the bird's eye view of what's happening. If you're taking notes, transferable development rights and making that work in a jurisdiction like Talbot and maybe yours back home is one of those, that's for the 401 class, but it's a tool that we could and should be making more use of to make leverage out of the resources we have. So good, good example from on the ground, and thank you very much, uh, council member. So our, our next speaker, we're going to go from uh, your left to right uh, down this table.
Mark Conway also comes to us with multiple hats and is a veteran of land conservancy and, and, and those efforts, but also sits before you as a district member of the Baltimore City Council. So uh, in your window of time, we want to hear about all of it. But part of that has to be uh, the stereotype of land conservation is babbling brooks and big, wide-open green spaces and so forth. And some of the most important efforts won't exactly look like that. And in Baltimore City, it's, the landscape's different. So walk us through it. Yeah. All of it can be uh, pr pretty summed up pretty quickly because I've only been on, on the council for about eight months now. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I think... A big issue in, in conservation generally um, is limited resources. Um, we as municipalities, as counties, as, as, as the city of Baltimore, we also struggle from limited resources and making sure that we can reclaim land. Um, but we also um, have this problem, and I, I dare call it possibly an opportunity, with a ton of vacant buildings and vacant spaces, as we've seen the city decline in population over the last you know, 70 years. Um, so, you know, one of the things... Um, you know, that, that we've been really leaning to in, in the last couple of years. So before I came on as a councilman, um, I ran a nonprofit called the Baltimore Tree Trust. And um, as, as executive director of the Baltimore Tree Trust, one of the things we worked on was the Green Network Plan, um, which pulled together um, insights from a number of community leaders, some of which are in this room here with us today, um, that really tried to give the, the city and its, its planning um, gurus insight on how to make the best use of the green space that we have in Baltimore City. Um, as you're fully aware, Baltimore City is almost entirely developed, but there are some, some, some gems in Baltimore City, well-known parks, um, well-known um, trails and, and, and bike paths and otherwise. But even more, there's this, this great opportunity to connect them all. Uh, the Green Network Plan looks to, um, to do exactly that, um, connecting each of the parks throughout the city together, um, and, and also looking at the opportunity to take advantage of that problem-slash-opportunity of, of vacant buildings. Um, you know, vacant buildings, vacant properties, um, as we've... Um, as we have a city have tried to tackle the vacant buildings problem, um, we've ge generally demolished buildings. Um, but, you know, we as a city are also looking at opportunities uh, where those vacant properties border parks or nearby parks or can create pocket parks uh, to create quiet green spaces for people and communities um, as we go forward. So, um, you know, the Green Network Plan has been a, a huge opportunity, I think, for us as a city. Of course, as I alluded to earlier, resources are always the problem here. Um, but then we also have another opportunity in front of us with a ton of federal funding coming down the pipeline as we speak. Um, and, you know, I continue to, to be, um, to, to, uh, to have hope in, in, in our opportunities in that funding and look forward to working with our mayor, uh, Brandon Scott, to um, leverage those fundings in ways that um, can really uh, change some of our communities going forward. Um, I told you a little bit of my uh, expertise, dare I call it that, not really that, um, uh, around tree planting with my time with the Baltimore Tree Trust. So one of our other major priorities is, of course, increasing the tree canopy in Baltimore. Um, when, when I initially moved to Baltimore, I'm not from Baltimore, but when I moved to Baltimore, one of the first things I noticed was um, a lack of trees in certain neighborhoods. Um, those certain neighborhoods, predictably, are east and west Baltimore. Um, these are low-income neighborhoods. As, uh, many of the folks in this room today have seen the maps. Um, these are blighted neighborhoods, typically lower-income neighborhoods, um, communities of color. Um, 
and you know, I, I jumped into that work particularly because I was interested in, in, in solving that problem. Um, and today, as we look at conservation opportunities and even more restoration opportunities, uh, planting trees is, is a big one here in the city. Um, there are a number of reasons why that's incredibly important. Um, one, for you know, the general beauty of the communities, um, tree line neighborhoods tend to have higher home sale values, so on and so forth, but um, also have a huge impact on air quality, water quality, heart disease and otherwise, um, but then also has a huge, huge, huge impact on the heat island effect. So interestingly, um, last year while I was with uh, the, the Tree Trust, um, there was a major article that came out that talked about the differences and disparities between some of our wealthier neighborhoods that were well-treat and some of our not-so-wealthy neighborhoods that almost had no trees. Um, and, you know, it, it was eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people because although we knew it, we didn't truly understand the difference that in those neighborhoods there was a 10 degree difference in, 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 um, in heat during the summer, um, which can lead to a number of health problems for folks who live in those communities. So um, increasing the tree canopy is incredibly important. Um, addressing the urban heat island effect as a result is incredibly important as well. Some of our parks um, really help us in that endeavor, and investing in our parks is going to be important in that, that endeavor. Um, Speaking to access, so, um, you know, we, we, we of course have the downtown waterfront. Uh, we're finding ways to uh, expand that to create access to beautify and, and to uh, better utilize that space. Um, but I actually want to talk more to some of the parks that we have and um, how we've been looking at ways to make sure that people truly have access to these parks. Just because you're near a park, I think as one of the, um, one of the presentations earlier today alluded to, just because you live near a park doesn't mean that you have access to that park. Um, Druid Hill Park is a great example of that. Uh, Druid Hill Park has got uh, a major road going up the west side of it that effectively blocks off those communities from walking directly into the park. Um, it only has a few entrances to the park, and many of those are by car. So if you live in those nearby communities, you are less likely to visit the park than, than, than some other folks. And so you know, we're, we as a city are continuing to think about these, these challenges and uh, what we can do to, to truly create equitable access to um, green space in our city, even though we are mostly developed. Council member, can I ask you a question too? Sure. Uh, you're mentioning a lot about the, the impact of trees and green space on, on public health, just quality of life, but I also think it's really important as we talk about trying to bring people up and people that are disparaged and live in low-income communities, we talk about community schools, and obviously that's important. We need resources. But just talk about how the outlook can change if you're living in a neighborhood and you have green space and you have trees, and you're not just looking at a bunch of concrete. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that firsthand, how outlooks can change and the importance of that. That doesn't get as much coverage, but I think it's important to, to really make that point and drive it home. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I am that example. <laughs> um, I, I originally grew up in, um, in the Bronx, New York, New York City, concrete jungle of sorts. Right. Um, had the opportunity to, to go to summer camp in New Hampshire and, and really get the, to experience nature and, and wildlife in a way that I didn't know was important. And, and look where I am today. Uh, I, you know, I, I have an opportunity to serve in conservation and um, to, to create opportunities like that for, for young people um, who I serve today. It's really important for us as a city to make sure that those those opportunities locally are very available and accessible. Um, everyone shouldn't have to go to New Hampshire to see a forest or, or to, to, to appreciate uh, green space in a park. Um, and we certainly have those opportunities in Baltimore City. We have forests in Baltimore City, shocker. Um, some, some very nice ones. I was actually at one yesterday. Um, <laughs> 
um, seeing some of the great work that some of the community organizations are doing to, to protect those forests and to keep them um, clean, accessible, um, and, and um, promote the wildlife there as well. But um, it, it, it means a lot for, for a number of reasons. One, um, in creating access for folks to, to go into these green areas, um, folks create a, it creates a, an appreciation for those areas. Um, and, and hopefully can result in uh, maybe not an overdevelopment of those areas uh, when we have plenty of spaces with our, our vacant lands now. Um, we have plenty of already developed properties that are being underutilized that we can definitely lean on um, today as opposed to uh, maybe growing into some of our, our untouched parts of, of the city. And I think even the state when we think about our opportunities across the state. So. Yeah, I love I love the connection with the vacant blighted properties. We know that's a problem. There are a lot of different proposals. I think this is a, is a really great idea to expand the green space, plant some trees, and really change the outcomes and, and, and really be that driver to, to inspire people and, and to lift these people up and these communities up that need it so much. And I, I want to transition now to, to Howard County, to Council Member Christiana Rigby. Council Member Rigby, I think you were the youngest woman to serve as council chair in Howard County history, is that correct? And, true. And, and not just as Howard County, your whole career has been dedicated to public service, much of it in the environmental space. So we've heard from Talbot, we've heard from Baltimore City, we have a lot of different perspectives here. I want to hear your thoughts on what, you know, green space and trees, and you may have more than Baltimore City and Howard County, but Talk about the importance and what it means to your community and what you're doing in Howard County, again, to, to advance these initiatives and create more green space, more trees, and how it affects your residents that you serve every day. Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin. Um, so I will start with a, a bit more of a bird's eye view to, to center people to the place. But um, we're pretty fortunate to be home to large swaths of both the Patuxent River and the Patapsco River, which is why we look like a sideways squash wiggly jelly bean. Um, I like that. In case you've ever wondered. It's, that's why. Um, <laughs> it's probably not the motto our county is going for. Um, but with that, we've also preserved about 46% of our land um, through open space, parks, agricultural preservation easements, and forest conservation. So I think that, that that speaks to some of our success because we are one of the fastest growing counties and we have this eye on preservation. We worked with our partners such as Patapsco Heritage Greenway as well as Howard County Conservancy um, to, and if anyone here has questions about agricultural preservation, you should absolutely see Ann Jones. Please raise your hand, Ann. Sorry. She's, she's right here. I'm pretty proud. It's a call out. But if, if you want to know more about AgPres, trials, tribulations, um, she's the one to talk to. And with that, I think that, that we have... We have done well in terms of conserving our land. I think that um, we've also done well in terms of park improvements um, and not just not just accessing green space, but who can access it. And so in one of our parks um, on Blandaire Regional Park, there's a playground for all. And, and that really works to be an inclusive playground so that people, regardless of their physical or mental abilities, have a space to come and be in community with each other in a green space. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm super proud of in Howard County. Uh, we've also worked as a county to increase our pollinator habitat. Um, I can tell you, I personally have done a lot on my, my little quarter acre <laughs> that I live on. And in addition to our park improvements, we have our environmental initiatives. We've purchased about five acres of, um, we refer to it in Howard County as a savage remainder, but it connects to our green infrastructure network. Um, this is also a targeted ecological area from DNR, so it's really 
great parcel of land to preserve. It expands the park, it expands our green infrastructure network, and it's in a very environmentally sensitive area. And while we can't preserve, we don't have the resources, unfortunately, like Pete mentioned, to preserve every parcel, um, we are really trying to preserve the ones we can and the ones that we can afford to preserve. I know that County Executive Pittman is going to appreciate me saying this, but Howard County passed the strongest local forest conservation act <laughs> in the state of Maryland <laughs> in late 2019, shortly after Anne Arundel County took similar actions uh, to protect their forest under County Executive Pittman's leadership. Um, so we now require that 75% of forest conservation requirements be met on site in future developments. Um, we've increased our forest replanting requirements significantly, especially to encourage more forests that are retained and replanted in the eastern watersheds. Um, in addition to our sort of wiggly jelly bean, we have a line that goes 108, goes sort of down almost the center of the county. And that's our public service line. So you can kind of think of it um, that really dictates how a lot of that land is managed. Um, but what it has meant in practice over the last several decades is that Forests in the east um, and replanting in the east has not happened necessarily at the same pace that we would like it to. And so we ended up with these disparities in terms of who gets access to tree canopy um, and who doesn't. And so, so that's one of the things that we've done in terms of forest conservation. And then Mark discussed the importance of tree planting. This is something that our county executive, Dr. Ball, has really made a priority. Um, over the last three years, Howard County has planted more than 50,000 trees. Um, including 4,000 trees that were given directly to residents to plant in their communities. And then we also, our last thing, Kevin, <laughs> is that um, I've been advocating and asking for an update to our climate plan. Um, you know, we, we are doing well, but there's, there's always more to be done. And, and I have small children, and when I look to the future, climate change is there. It's, it's always in the future when I'm looking ahead at how our lives will be and how we be in community with each other. Um, and with that, it was thankfully funded in the FY22 budget, so we will be updating our greenhouse gas emissions. We will be um, giving us new goals since we beat the last ones. Let's go even harder. Um, and then also analyze some of our agricultural and soil conservation um, potential, because I think that that is one thing that we often leave out of the conversation when it comes to climate change, and there's so much opportunity um, they're right in the right in the dirt. <laughs> I, I have one question for you because I, sure. I know I'm sure a lot of what is being talked about at this conference is advocacy. And in Howard County, you're an advocate for education. I'm sure everyone at this table is, but I know you particularly are. And people always want better schools. They want newer schools. They want the best teachers. They want to have all of that. You're balancing the needs of preservation and, and, and rightfully so, making sure that trees are planted in, in these green spaces and keeping that open. But also, in order to you know to build better schools and to have better infrastructure and to hire better teachers, you need to expand the tax base, right? So how do you balance? You know, we want the trees, we want the schools. How do you make it all work while also preserving so much land that maybe doesn't generate tax revenue? And that's probably a four-hour answer. Right. I was like, here with the easy questions today. Okay. <laughs> two, two minutes, okay. All right. I mean, the, the answer is, is unfortunately what it always is, which is that it's about choices and trade-offs. Um, and, and we have to say, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I'm a parent of young children. I look, at, I look at the whole child. And for a child to do well in the school system, 
they they need things beyond the time that they're in that school building. They need to be stably housed. They need food. They need spaces to recreate and safe spaces to just be a human in <laughs> um, and explore and learn about themselves and their world. And so I think that you have to you have to set your priorities. And so one way to do that is to clarify where you can build and, and where you can't. And the other is to to balance all those things. So for me, it's about having our housing and transportation so that way you can bike to the park you can walk to the park you can bike to the grocery store and how do we change our built environment to make those choices easy for people because right now our built environment isn't easy for people i'd love i'd love to help you out there because i I, i've been thinking about this too and um when you're resource constricted um you get creative Uh, (laughs) um and and i think part of that creativity is identifying opportunities where approaches can address multiple problems. Yeah. Um, uh, one, one of the one of the things that um, one of the things that uh, I was fortunate enough to to spearhead while uh, in my previous role with the Tree Trust was to kick off a workforce development program specifically targeting um, job creation for folks in the communities that we were working in to green. So it did a couple of things. It, it, it trained folks for jobs in tree care and landscaping. It greened those communities, and it also created new stewards in those communities. And I think if we can find ways to make sure that our dollars go that much further by um, saving two birds with, with multiple scopes. Or, oh, I like that. You know, yeah. um, right. I, I, I think, I think that, that's how we make our money count, um, even though resources may be limited. And I, and I think that's... What I'm looking for there is, it, in, in all advocacy, sometimes we're all in silos and we have a tendency to do that. But I think it's important to look outside the box and explain why your issue, the issue that is so important to you, can save multiple birds with one stone. Right? That that's exactly the, the, I think so important when you're advocating for an issue that you connect all of these different things together and explain why your issue is going to help globally. And that brings us to County Executive Pittman for Anne Arundel County. And County Executive, besides you know maybe unveiling the bill that you have that's going to one-up Howard County now. <laughs> I want to hear about what's, what's happening in Aroma County. I am a resident of Aroma County, and um, I, I can say that I think environmentally the county is on a really good track at this point, and we have a lot going on that's in terms of preservation, in terms of making sure we have these green spaces. And I know a big emphasis is you know how, how environmental priorities and green space can affect kids and can lead to better outcomes. So let's hear from the county executive about what you have going on and, and maybe looking ahead to, to what you're planning to, to even go further. We do have a bill like that, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. Yeah, we had the, <laughs> we had the best Forest Conservation Act for a very short time. You definitely outdid us. And, and, um, but the original proposal that got watered down was maybe good enough to beat you. But one of the cool things about forest conservation, by the way, is that most people support it. Um, Chesapeake Conservancy, Joel Dunn over here, did a poll when we were working on forest conservation, and it showed close to 80%, maybe it was slightly over 80% support for a very strong forest conservation bill among both political parties. And believe it or not, there was a little bit higher support among Republicans than Democrats. So that immediately when that poll came out, 
seven votes out of seven on our county council for the bill. Um, so public opinion really does matter. But I just have a question I want to I want to jump in with, which is for all of you. Um, please raise your hand if you love nature. Okay, it's why you do for this. For listeners, right? that's a lot of hands. Okay. <laughs> now raise your hand if you love people. Yeah, about half. Right? <laughs> So I come from this background where I was lucky enough to grow up on a 550-acre farm that had been in my family for a while. And my dad was all about land preservation, and he made sure that his seven kids couldn't sell any of it without five votes, and, and that'll never happen. And then he, he used the Ag Preservation Program to, to preserve the farm. And, and so I sort of grew up on that stuff, and I knew that. I love nature, and I love open space, and I really, truly believe it makes people healthier. But um, I also spent some time as a community organizer, particularly working on affordable housing issues. I work for the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. So when I go around the county and talk about affordable housing and workforce housing, um, some people say, well, how can you do that and, pr and pr protect open space and protect nature? And, and to me, that's the part where we really have a lot of hard work to do. And so I was lucky in that when I came into office two and a half years ago, our 10-year general development plan had to be done soon. So we were able to convene people and try to educate people. We brought in Paris Glendening and Smart Growth America to really look at what it means to do smart growth. That you can, you can develop in ways where you don't take up all the land and then you can get support for open space. Now everybody loves parks too, right? We have a $46 million capital budget for park improvements right now. It's awesome. And we got an extra $9 million out of the state this year that we didn't expect. So we're doing a lot of work to take some of the open space that we have and make it more accessible. But then there are people who say, well, we love it when the county acquires the land and as long as nobody actually comes on it, except the people who live right next door. They're allowed to use it. And so we have that. And it's just as consistent that these things keep coming up. Um, so, you know, we are constantly having to, you know, as people in public service, deal with these, these conflicts in the public and, and really try to, to bring people to an agenda that most people can support. I believe that you actually can be good to people and good to nature and that human beings can coexist with nature. I mean, it'd be easier if there weren't so many of us, right? But, but um, we can coexist with nature. Um, I mean, in the way in Baltimore City, you know, planting more trees, it makes people healthier. We all know that. It makes society work better. So I think we're making progress on that in Anne Arundel County. I mean, we passed our general development plan. Um, I think it was a great plan. Developers don't love what we did on forest conservation. They probably didn't like what you did either. Um, but now we're coming back and we're saying, look, we're serious about smart growth. We want transit-oriented development. We want to get cars off the road and do more transit. All of these things make sense. And now we're talking about climate change and resilience. And so to climate change, you got 600 miles. You got us beat. We're, we're getting beat by everybody. We only got 530 miles of coast. But, we have zero. Uh, zero, okay, zero. okay. Zero coastline. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you clear the Patuxent River, we might have you beat. But, um, um, so we have an issue with, with sea level rise and storm surges, right? And, and, and sunny day flooding in Annapolis. And um, so uh, fortunately we got this, well not fortunately, we worked hard at it. We got the state to step up and allow the creation of resilience authorities to fund resilience work. And, and um, some of that work is actually keeping land in open space. 
right, that may be developed now. They say you can't reverse development, but you actually can in some instances. Um, some of it is doing things like what we're going to do in City Dock, which I think is going to be people around the world are going to look at the way City Dock in Annapolis is going to be raised up and then a beautiful green space created, and it's going to make downtown Annapolis the coolest place ever. And it's going to be a little bit expensive, but that's why we have a resilience authority, so that you can create these finance mechanisms so that it's not just the taxpayers across the county, but it's also the businesses who are going to benefit, and hopefully some federal money will be coming down the line. So um, I think we've got to remember that the resilience work is part of the open space and land preservation work. Um, parks are also part of it, that when we, when we create the good amenities, people support the open space, and water access is a big issue for us, too, is, is finding more locations for that. Um, so um, I guess... And then the final thing I want to say is that, you know, after coming through COVID, I believe that people are a little bit more um, aware of public health as an issue. And that when, well, I find that when I define issues in terms of public health, yeah, I was getting too close again, wasn't I? Um, you can sell almost anything as long as it's to improve the health and the wellness of the people that we serve. And so we talk about social, social determinants of health. And when we sell open space and parks as a health issue, which it absolutely is, um, we get even more political support for it. So um, um, what, we, what we have to avoid doing is selling it as just stopping people from living places. So we get accused of exclusionary zoning, and sometimes it is exclusionary. I mean, the, the 20 houses per acre, we have that in South County, too, and I sometimes think about it, and I drive by these lawns that are 20 acres, and I think, my God, let's put some of that in cultivation. Let's do, let, you know, let a forest grow there, something. Um, but but um, I'm not sure it's always the solution, uh, because only people with a lot of money can buy a 20-acre lot. So um, it's, it's um, I think Maryland is ahead of a lot of other states in that we have this smart growth history. And I think this administration actually at state level maybe hasn't really stuck with the smart growth concepts the way some in the past. And I think we have to get back to that. And I think then um, we really have the political support to continue to preserve open space in, in Maryland and all of our counties. Well, one of the things you said, and along the same lines of, of thinking outside the box and, and advocating effectively, you mentioned several times, I think, of bringing everybody to the table. And maybe everybody doesn't like what you're doing, but you're bringing them back and explaining why this is actually good for them. And as long as everybody is at the table, I think you create uh, an atmosphere where people have mutual respect for one another. And that really drives the dialogue. So you've had to do a lot of, you know, in your words, controversial things. But I think those people have been at the table. And so at least they're there. And I think that's, that's probably super important, especially down the line with those relationships and continuing to explain the importance of these initiatives. So talk about, you know, in, in terms of advocacy, how important it is, again, not to, to, to sit in your own silo, but to actually be at the table with everybody and working out, you know, uh, solutions that can benefit everybody. You just have to explain why it's going to benefit. Yeah, I mean, the advocacy is essential. And I always, as an old community organizer, I always encourage people, we couldn't have gotten the forest conservation bill done. We also couldn't have gotten our workforce housing bill and our fair housing bill done without advocates on those issues. Um, but in terms of coming to consensus where there's conflict, let me use an example. There's somebody in the room who knows exactly what I'm talking about because she lives there. Um, Mayo Peninsula, um, Beverly Triton Park, and Mayo Beach Park. And, and um, so, you know, small road coming in and out, um, improvements being made that are going to create more people coming to those parks and, and um, um, P 
people were parking all over the place. The, the parks would get full, just like so Sandy Point gets full. You know, you can't get there after 10 o'clock in the morning and, and even get in. And, and uh, we don't want people lining up on the road and, you know, drinking their beer and having their picnic in, in people's lawns. Um, we need people to know they can get in. So we created a park, park pass system. So people from wherever you are, you know that you've got a spot to get to that park and get into that park that Saturday with your kids. And the community supports that because it gets people so that people aren't parking all over the neighborhood. Um, so um, it's really difficult sometimes to do the water access stuff with the community residents, but it's the community residents who support the preservation to begin with. And sometimes they do it out of their own pockets. So we've got to be um, sympathetic to both, bring them together and come up with solutions like that. And it's not easy, but got to do it. So, so I want to loop back to one more, this is a self-serving closing comment, but another one of those land preservation 401 topics that's its own panel discussion waiting to happen is a resilience authority. If you haven't heard that term, or you don't know what it is, or you don't know what it's about, two suggestions. In a decade, you're going to know a lot about that term. This is going to be a big wave in public <laughs> policy. And if you want to know soon, you need to come to the Maryland Association of Counties Summer Conference in August. Because we are going to go and talk about resilience authorities as the kind of tool that can help your jurisdictions back home tackle these kind of challenges. We'll have people from Anne Arundel and the University of Maryland and other players talking about how to make this happen. So with that, that's a way to bring some of this together. We're at about the end of our appointed time. I don't know if our hosts want us to wrap up with questions or are we done? We are... Okay, so we have just a couple minutes for questions, and what I will do for the benefit of our future listeners on the pod is I'll try and do a quick uh, recap when we hear you in the room. But who's got a question for our esteemed panel? One back here. Um, so I kind of had a question, just like you mentioned resiliency councils, and I know two of the council members, Richie and Pippin, um, both mentioned climate change. I'm from Ellicott City, so... Climate change feels very near and dear to my heart um, because I watched the heart of my city flood and within two years it happened again after we simply rebuilt. And so I think for all of the counties, kind of my question is like, what moves are being made for those emergency planning because those storms are only going to become more frequent and the sea level is only going to rise faster and the land is only going to subside more. So like, what is the plan for like making sure you're ready for those events? So, so the question about, uh, for those who couldn't hear, the question about Ellicott City experiencing 100-year floods twice in the space of, what, 16, 18 months or thereabouts. So um, that's at least adjacent to a lot of things we've talked about. Councilmember Rigby, get the first whack at that pinata, I think. Sure. So I, um, I'm not, as you probably know, I'm not the representative for Ellicott City. Um, I represent sort of the bottom right of the county. Um, but what I can say is, from my view and sort of seeing and working with the county executive and the council member who represent the area, one of the biggest challenges I think is that the state and federal governments really need to reorient how they work with the counties on that because the scale of devastation is, it's, it's, it's just really unimaginable when it, there's no, there's no way to adequately prepare for it and we don't have enough time to, even if we saved dollar money and didn't do anything, you know, we couldn't build up enough reserves in the next few years to, to 
be able to handle that without federal and state intervention. So um, I know that uh, Senator Katie Hester and Delegate Courtney Watson worked together at the state to bring some of that resilience authority back um, to Ellicott City and work with the partners there. I think that um, County Executive Pittman can talk much more about how that works um, in practice, but I will say from seeing the, I came into office in 2018, so it's very much part of the recovery and reimbursement process, and um, the way that it's currently set up is, is not to handle these types of, there's been a catastrophe and now you need a quick, um, you need to build that resilience in quickly. They're more like, oh, we'll help you get back on your feet, but you're like, no, no, I don't have feet. I don't even have calves. Like, um, so so I, I'm hopeful that we'll see changes in federal and state reimbursements and how that process works, but I think the Resilience Authority is a good first step because what I'm talking about is a much longer system fix. I would just add that a resilience plan is a, is a different thing from an, a resilience authority. So the authority is the financing mechanism, and the folks in the authority will take a really hard look at your county to figure out what the vulnerabilities are. But the resilience plan uses sophisticated mapping and, and, and identifies the risks. And it should be pretty obvious, in, you know, Ellicott City is, was and is at risk, and things need to be planned to prevent that from being as bad as it could be in the future. Um, so we, I don't think any general development plan, any land use plan, should be absent of that sort of a of a risk assessment. And should they should, if you're looking at land use, you should be looking at at the vulnerabilities from from climate change, and everybody has to do that. And and our team did that when we did our GDP as well. Uh, well, I will say one last thing, <laughs> which oh, is sure. that we pursued a uh, WIFI loan. Which allows, so we have to finish the work within five years, which is fine because they've done all the planning. Now's the time for the digging, um, and and so because the landscape of how you finance these things is more of a hellscape than a landscape, I would say. <laughs> um, but through that WIFI loan, we're able to to get that loan so we can get the work done and get it done now. Um, so that that's what I would recommend to any people who are currently facing that is to pursue that um, financing option. Okay. Got one more question back here. Great, thank you. Um, so, we're actually here representing Brian Sandoz, uh, and I'm interested to hear, well, from all of you, but certainly from the gentleman who, whose counties have a lot of water from. These particular landowners are right on the Chesapeake and are suffering from erosion, losing just significant amounts of land every day right now. What what are what are what is available to help an individual landowner save their land from the destruction from erosion? Personally they've invested a significant sum of money in you know the, the, the tools that are available today. The most effective is grip wrap. We all know what that costs for linear foot. Um, so I'm just curious uh, from perhaps uh, uh, a government standpoint, a leadership standpoint, is there a focus on erosion and protection from erosion? And then at the individual landowner level, um, what are other folks doing? How are they saving their land? So for our listeners, the question, for anyone else who couldn't hear, a question is about a more literal land preservation <laughs> effort that is combating shoreline erosion. So Talbot, maybe? Any, any thoughts on that front? Well, 
look, uh, th there is there is there is a little bit of, of public funding available to save public lands uh, along these uh, in, in uh, uh, working waterfront uh, funding from from DNR, uh, but but none none certainly directly for private. There there may be some in some cases some some private benefit. The only instance that I know of where the where state funding has gone to save private land uh, is Rhodes Point down in Smith Island, where where a, an entire point was saved in order to. Uh, in order to protect the entire waterfront of Rhodes Point, uh, but but by and large, by and large, uh, the the focus is the, the 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 onus there is on the private landowner, and and I think from a, from a government point of view, uh, we're still at the stage of taking inventory of where the risks are. Uh, we're not even at the plan stage that uh, that Stewart is talking about uh, of, of just taking uh, taking inventory of where those risks are. And then figuring out what we what strategies we need to employ, and frankly, one of those strategies, which is not very palatable, is retreat. There's resilience. There's re there's different ways of dealing with this, but there are times that we simply have to retreat. I think that that frontier is something that if we had 24 jurisdictions and our municipal counterparts in a lengthy row and an 11-hour panel, uh, we'd probably have a variety of, of, of more conversation about where does that fit into your comprehensive plan, where does it fit into a climate action plan, your watershed implementation plan is also thinking of buffers and a variety of things that are connected to, to that sort of thing, but that frontier of the public responsibility and collaboration with private landowners, I think um, it's there's there's the rich rich uh, soil to be to be plowed there. I think. Although I would just add that the resilience authority, we fully expect to be doing those kinds of partnerships. There will be whether it's private homeowners as a group, a homeowners association, uh, businesses coming in and and right. financing together with other government. But treating some of those efforts as a public good in the way that we, th we think of our water pipes as something we all pay for as that infrastructure, the idea of barrier restoration or things of that nature as part of that effort as a community, that's the mentality of a resilience authority that it's a new way of thinking about some of this. So. Okay, with that, folks, I think we're out of time. Please join me in thanking all of our panelists for their contributions today. Thanks for having us. And I will say, if you uh, have not yet signed up for the Bureau of Association County Summer Conference, August 18th, 19th, 20th? 18th, 20th, 18th, 21st. 18th, 21st, please do so. It is one of the best other than this All right, there you have it. Again, a big thanks to Forever Maryland for hosting the Conduit Street Podcast. We hope that audio came through okay. We were in a large room, and it was packed. And, of course, a big thanks to Howard County Councilmember Christiana Rigby, Baltimore City Councilmember Mark Conway, Talbot County Councilmember Pete Lesher, and Anne Arundel County Executive Stuart Pittman. 
Also, a big thanks to Wicomico County Councilmember Josh Hastings, who also serves as the Program and Policy Director at Forever Maryland. Councilmember Hastings was a big part of putting this conference together. If you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael Sanderson, Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.